Well, good morning, Sobble Church. Thank you for continuing to worship with us. And as we come into the Word today, uh, looking forward to sharing something with you. In fact, it's not lost on me that the last time that I spoke at Sobble Church was March 2020, uh, a while back there. And uh, anything changed since then? (laughs) It actually was the first time we actually recorded and went fully online as the church. And so I got to be the guinea pig for that whole uh, thing. And here I am today again, talking to a camera in a room with nobody this time. Actually, there's a couple people at that point, but uh, today there's nobody. Well, happy Sunday. Uh, And if you're watching this any other time, I'm actually recording this in uh, preparation for Sunday, which is Palm Sunday. And if you're a longtime churchgoer like me, then you're probably uh, remembering uh, those Sunday mornings where the kids would invade the sanctuary with palm branches uh, flying, yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, and all the fun that uh, happened around that. The story about Jesus coming in on a donkey into Jerusalem, and, and, and maybe that's about all you remember uh, from those Sunday mornings. Um, today I'm hoping, and we are going to get to a triumphal entry, absolutely, Uh, But what I'd like to do is sort of draw some conclusions from Scripture. And as we walk through a few different scenes, uh, I want to come to the end uh, as we prepare ourselves for meeting Jesus at the cross this week. And so uh, let's do that together. And as we begin, we're going to actually head way back into Scripture. Lots of people will know the story or at least have some familiarity with uh, Jesus in Jerusalem coming in on a donkey, uh, but they might not quite connect the dots to another king who came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so that's where we're going to start today. So let's go ahead and start there. If you have your Bible with you, you're probably going to want that. We're going to be jumping around a little bit from place to place to place, and I'd love for you to join with me in that and do some further study. Um, This is not supposed to be a show. This is you participating in, and let's do this together. So, uh, okay, let's get started. First Kings. Now, in First Kings, we see that David is... Here, let's go there. First Kings, uh, David is an old man. In fact, he's so old and weak and in bed, uh, sick, and just not healthy uh, that he can't even keep himself warm. The, the giant slayer, the uh, army defeater, the champion uh, of hide-and-seek in Israel, uh, all these things, and now we have this old man who uh, can't keep himself warm. And so David is there at the start of 1 Kings, and that actually sets up where this story is going. See, David has all kinds of wives and kids, and one of those kids, a son named Adoniah, Uh, sees an opportunity and begins to make a plan, a plot, to take over the kingship and to take the throne. He gathers with him a religious leader and an army uh, military uh, person, and together they begin to make this plan. In fact, in 1 Kings, we see that they've already begun to take a coronation party, and they are making that happen. Now, the only problem with that is, well, there's probably several problems with that, but way back in uh, Chronicles, we see that David has already uh, heard from the Lord and has made a plan to install Solomon, his son Solomon, as the next king. And that doesn't hold a lot of room for Adonai to have anything at all. 
And so you'll remember that David and Bathsheba have a son named Solomon. And Solomon has uh, been chosen by God to be the next king. And so Adonijah's party, his plan, is actually a coup or something that doesn't uh, correlate with uh, what God's plan is. So Bathsheba then informs the king. She brings the prophet Nathan with her and they go and meet David and they inform him of everything that is happening while he's not paying attention. And David then kind of eventually springs into action. He retains Nathan. He brings in a couple of other guys and they together come up with a master plan for what they're about to do. Now, from that point on, uh, what we're going to see is the steps to bring in this new king, this new uh, ruler, and take out this uh, usurper, this uh, uh, coup uh, manufacturer, this, this guy who's going to try to take out God's plan. And that's really important. David's plan is to uh, get the, the guys to put Solomon on top of his royal donkey or his royal mule. And this is not your average ordinary mule. This is like the Air Force One of the time. This is not like some generic uh, Ford style donkey. This is uh, the real deal. And it's adorned and everybody knows exactly what it's all about. And so David says, we'll take him down to the spring of Gion. And there I want you to anoint him. And once you've done anointing him, then bring him back up to the palace. And we'll parade him through and that'll squash this whole thing. In fact, that's exactly what they did. So they take him outside of the city. This is Jerusalem. And uh, you can see that the spring is, is clearly marked there. And as they take him out to this very special place, they anoint him the next king. Uh, Solomon, that is. And as they do that, then they begin to bring him back through the city. And the scripture is really uh, kind of clear on this, that as they do that, there is a lot of noise, a lot of excitement, a lot of uh, pomp. And so uh, this is what scripture actually says in verse 40. And all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes and shouting for joy. The celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound. Now that's a party and that is a statement. Um, so somewhere else in the city, there is a uh, somebody who thinks they want to be king holding a party. And yet here is the actual king having been anointed, being brought through the city, and the whole city is electric with excitement. So loud that it shakes the ground. So eventually we see that Adoniah is brought into the loop on what's happening outside. We see that his party eventually dissipates. We see that he's not harmed in all of that transition. That's important. And that we see a new king has been installed. So we have a triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. We have an anointed king. We have the destroying of a plan of a usurper. We have nations rejoicing. And we see a king enthroned and the praise of his people following him along in that. That is the first of what we're going to look at. That's about 930 B.C., so let's fast forward now, uh, some 400 years or so, and here we see that the kingdom has gone through lots of different things. There's been a divide, there's been all kinds of stuff. Most recently, uh, they have been in exile in Babylon and have just, well, in that vicinity of time, 
This is where Zechariah comes in. So find in your Bible Zechariah, and we're going to aim for chapter 9. And if you can get there before I start reading, that would be helpful. And here we see that in this environment, the people are uh, very excited to have a new king come in. They've been in exile. Uh, A lot of their customs and um, rituals, their, uh, their way of life has been compromised. They're looking to retake the land and some of what they know already. They're looking for a coming conquering king to come in power to take out these people who are uh, sort of oppressors in their mind, to bring back peace, to rejuvenate the land, all that kind of stuff, establish a kingdom that will never end, all these things. And this is the environment where Zechariah writes. Now he is hearing from God and he writes down for us. And let's read this. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Israel. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth because of the covenant I made with you sealed with blood. I will free your prisoners from the death of the waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. Judah is my bow and Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword, and like a warrior, I will brandish it against the Greeks. Here is the scene. They have been waiting for this. Generations of people have lived and died waiting for this. Zechariah now comes with a word from the Lord about this conquering king who is coming to take on the oppressors, to free uh, every prisoner. And here is where it all meets ahead. This is amazing news. Finally, this is going to happen. The image uh, that he presents there, yes, this king is gonna come humbly riding on a donkey, but that's not the most important part in some of their minds. I mean, it seems that way. He's gonna take away chariots, war horses, bows. He's going to free prisoners, restore the fortresses. He's gonna take us uh, as a warrior sword, and he's going to crush the enemies. He is the coming, conquering, and great king. And this is just one section of a wealth of prophecy uh, in the Old Testament. In fact, it would be an awesome study for us here at the church uh, to look at all the places that sort of uh, look towards Jesus or where is Jesus in this area. That would be a fantastic study. If there was... Um, a few of these prophecies that uh, are spoken and then come true in Jesus' life, that would be fantastic. But there is over 300 of these. A tapestry that has been sort of woven together all through history leading up to this time. This tapestry that we get to see now and from our end on 2022 end, we can look back and see how this piece fits and this piece fits and all that kind of stuff. Boy, it's kind of fantastic. Uh, kind of fantastic, and so Zechariah comes in and shows us that. Now, this is about 520 years 
uh, before Jesus comes in. Uh, Timeline's a little bit fuzzy, but that's okay. Something like that. Now we're going to get to the place where we're going this morning. We're going to actually zoom ahead even, in fact, very close to where we're aiming at today. And of all four Gospels that report on the triumphal entry or this uh, entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday, only one of them records this next part of the story that we're going to talk about. It's John. Now, in Jesus' story, he gets a call from some of his friends, some of his very dear friends, to come because one of his friends, the beloved one, uh, is sick and not doing well. In fact, it looks like he's probably going to die. And so Jesus uh, hears that message. He finishes what he's doing. And by the time he gets to the house, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. In fact, he's been in the tomb for four days. The sisters are distraught. All his friends are gathered there. The disciples are there watching. And of all the four gospel writers that were, I mean, had to be there, had to remember this, only one, John, records this encounter. I mean, Matthew and Mark were certainly there, but somehow it escapes their uh, telling of the story. Luke blows my mind because Dr. Luke, a guy is raised from the dead and you didn't write about it. I, anyway, that was the whole thing. John writes about this story. And in that story, John writes or tells us that Jesus uh, has conversations and everything else finally goes to the tomb tells him to take the stone away from the mouth of the tomb and calls Lazarus out. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. It's an amazing story. And the one thing that I want to grasp from this, and the reason that I bring it up today, is because it's at that point that the Pharisees' plot to take Jesus out uh, really starts to stir. Really, I mean, it's been kind of building over time. Jesus has been doing a lot of things uh, that are really kind of raising a lot of eyebrows and uh, wooing people away from the way that the religious uh, people would like to see things go. And yet here we are at this uh, moment in time and it's starting to brew, it's starting to uh, fester. Jesus uh, is making moves that are hard to explain to the Romans. For the, for the Jewish uh, uh, powerful people to explain to the Romans why this is happening, why this uprising is happening, why this, uh, let's call it destructive in that uh, it's destructive to their way of thinking uh, is happening. And so they have to somehow rationalize this. In fact, at one point, Caiaphas, who's the high priest uh, at the time said, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. And we're going to talk about why he says that in a moment, but for the whole nation to be destroyed. See, in their history, they've seen things go really badly and they're trying really hard to live in a way that uh, they can keep their culture rolling, their belief system, everything that they know, uh, while under Roman oppression. And now this Jesus comes in and he's making a mess out of everything that they know and hold dear. Goes on in uh, just a couple of verses from there. As high priest, this is Caiaphas. At that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to 
bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. Here's why I think this is significant. I feel like this is the point where uh, we get a, a snapshot into the, uh, the mind of the religious leaders. Often we're so quick to judge them and throw them apart, but here's the thing. They don't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, but they are preparing for Messiah. Jesus is a distraction. And so as they are preparing the, uh, the place for Jesus to come, they, uh, sorry, not for Jesus, for Messiah to come, Jesus uh, has been part of a prophecy that Caiaphas actually makes where Jesus would die for the good of the nation. Now there's a couple of ways you can take that. Number one, we'll take him out. He has to die. That one has to happen so that we can continue doing what we've been doing and what we've been preparing for so the Messiah can come. Or what we know now to be true, that he is the Messiah that would die uh, to bring healing to the nations and bring God's scattered people back together. At least that's the goal, and that is where we're going to end our time today in just a little bit. So you can see that a couple of different ways. In fact, my suspicion is that as people are viewing the tapestry that we were talking about from time and now coming into this part of the story, I wonder if there's other people who are viewing that, seeing the events that are happening all around them, and wondering if there's ways that we ought to get the plot rolling. What's my role in making this happen? And I think we'll come to some interesting conclusions as we get into Friday, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Finally, the last piece of scripture that we want to investigate is the big moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this for us in different ways. Jesus is again coming back to Lazarus' house, John tells us, this time for a special dinner that's been uh, prepared for him. He's at the table. Uh, Lazarus is there with him. Uh, one of Lazarus' sisters uh, dumps a, a whole thing of, of perfume on Jesus' feet. And it's that dinner that uh, we start to see that there's this crowd of this disciple crowd. There's the, there's the 12 disciples that we know. Then there's this whole cloud of people outside. And the excitement around Jesus is just electric, just pulsating. We're ready for something amazing to happen. He just brought Lazarus back from the dead. He was dead for four days. Everybody agrees on this. It happened. Lazarus is in there sitting at the table right now. That something's about to happen. Something is cooking. And this is all kind of happening. You see the, the image of Solomon riding in to take on uh, the usurper and become the new king. That makes sense to me. I, I get that. The prophet Zechariah has talked about this coming Messiah and how he will uh, come in and do his work and how that needs to uh, happen first. We've seen all the miracles. We've seen how he does amazing things something's cooking, something is happening. And so as we get closer to Passover, in fact, we're about six days away from Passover when this event happens, Jesus comes in and as he's going in towards Jerusalem, he sends his disciples ahead. They bring him a donkey and, and, and her colt. 
Jesus gets on and starts riding into the town. And as he begins all these things, they're viewing the tapestry. They're trying to figure out how this is all coming together. And here is this Jesus who does amazing things, sitting on a colt, the, the, this colt of a donkey that we have been expecting. As he comes down from the Mount of Olives, I mean, people are just going straight palmy. They are putting palm branches down. They're putting coats down on the way. This is, the excitement is building, building, building so much so that it is quite visible. The city is electric. And so the road is lined with people. In my mind, I see uh, crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds. And as he comes down through the Mount of Olives and he sees Jerusalem for the first time, there's this moment. Uh, but before we get there, I want us to do something. Let's read this together. This crowd that's electrified by Jesus. So read along with me if you are able where you're at. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And blessed is the king of Israel. There's no way that you can misunderstand that they thought this was the Messiah coming. They had put all the pieces together. And then this moment where Jesus pauses. He sees Jerusalem and Luke tells us that he weeps. Luke then records these words. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. You did not recognize it when God visited you. I want to focus in on that for a moment. This the buzz that happens through the city and how they uh, come to it, but it's not lost on Jesus that there's a greater mission, even if the people don't see it around him. Mark uh, records that as they come into town, something kind of interesting in my mind happens. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, went into the temple, and after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany and the 12, with the 12 disciples. After all of that, coming into town triumphantly, the place is electric. He goes into town. He goes to the temple and then leaves. Can you imagine? I mean, the people who celebrate his coming, I guess, just go home. Those who call him king, just walk away. People who have been waiting generations to see this person come in uh, gently riding on a donkey, uh, they just pause, it seems. It just, it just it stops. Those who are closest to him follow him and they head back home again. And that's where this event seems to pause. It's amazing. And I assume they returned the donkey back, but I don't know that either. Interesting, though, that Jesus pauses and weeps for the city because they didn't recognize him. And as they do, um, and they come back to, uh, isn't it amazing that uh, Jesus has this moment of reflection? The people in the city, it's very popular for pastors and preachers to talk about how 
um, the people who cheered him on Sunday are the same people on this coming Friday who are yelling, crucify him. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Crucify him, crucify him. Blessed is this man, welcome the coming back of the kingdom. Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Now, whether those two groups are the exact same, I don't know. But it does make it really clear that we ought to take some time to reflect. It's poetic to say that the same group that's here is the same group that's here. Praising and then cursing. Honoring and then denying. That sounds like a lot of us. I think. I think that there is a, a, a moment here to collect ourselves as we look towards this holy week and the cross at the other end of it and what the impact of that is for our lives and pause and reflect on what that means for us. Were the same people who were there the same people as over here? I don't know. But where do you find yourself in the story? Do you find yourself leaving your comfortable spot to investigate these claims of Jesus in the apparent miracles? Are you part of that group? Are you beside him watching every move that he makes, hopefully waiting to see something powerful and unexpected? Are you simply excited to follow the crowd and wave palm branches because everybody else is doing it? Or are you somewhere else in the city completely unaware of the events that are happening outside, ignoring the noise? Maybe you're watching this and you're simply wishing I would stop telling these Jesus stories so you can grab lunch. But wherever you are, I think there is room to, to pause and to collect ourselves and prepare ourselves for what's about to happen. Let's put pause on this message for a moment. I want to invite you to come to tonight's worship uh, event that's happening here at the church. Whether you're um, watching this on Sunday morning or hopefully sometime before 7 o'clock on Sunday, you're able to pause and come and be there. The whole goal is that we want to, through music and through prayer and through pausing, begin to prepare ourselves. And that's exactly what it's designed for. If you're not able to do that, or you're watching this too late, you missed it, I would challenge you to take some time and really make a plan to do this. To take some time and pause and find some space where you can draw near to God. Maybe it's listening to music. Maybe it's your thing is taking a break out of your daily schedule and removing one item out of that schedule and replacing it with prayer or with time devoted to worship whatever your thing is. As we get closer to the cross, I would challenge you to take some time to prepare yourself. All too often in the church, we hear stories and we uh, love them. We hear songs and we love them. But as we go through, the power seems to leach out of them. And that's a shame. It's a tapestry that we weave to ourselves and somehow we miss it. We're not unlike the Pharisees. We miss it. We're looking so hard for Jesus at times even that we miss Jesus. Or we're working so hard at everything else that we forget and we miss Jesus. Well, I would encourage you to do that. 
and, and join us in that uh, in some way. Let's see what Easter will do. Well, before we close today, I want to tell you a little story about my life. And about five and a half years ago, uh, change came. It's not change that I planned for. It's not change that I prepared for, but a change happened. And the God who had called me into ministry for about a 20-year career there at that point, um, well, saw fit to have me take a little break. A conversation happened at a hockey arena and a relationship formed. And at that point, a job offer came and I needed to change. I needed something. The prayer that I made was that I would follow through open doors as they were presented. That's a dangerous prayer, but I did it. Here was a job offer to sell cars. Could I do that? And I thought at the time, this will be an interesting six week adventure and I'll be right back here doing ministry or doing something somewhere. But if I was going to do it for six weeks, I was going to give it everything that I possibly had. And so I did. I put things in place. Uh, I, I began to learn how to, to do uh, car sales. I learned everything I could about the cars that I was selling. I'd never even driven one before. I surrounded myself with mentors who seemed to be doing it well. How could I learn from them and do what they do so that I could make this fly? I mean, keep in mind, I had a mortgage to pay and I had family at home. I had to provide for them somehow. I began to build a social media platform and I began to do this thing called self-promotion, which I had never done before. And so that was kind of interesting. Inside that, there was times where it was easy. Sometimes it was really hard, but I had to wrestle with the idea of how does a pastor become a car salesman? And so I tried my best to do everything I could to serve people just like I knew how to do. I didn't know how to do anything else. How do I listen to people's problems that they have and how can I come alongside them and help out with that? How can I do this role that has so historically been fraught with um, uh, dishonesty and uh, somehow selfish gain and come alongside and do it with my integrity still intact? How can I still continue to be a trustworthy helper? And so I did it. Within that first six months, in fact, in my second month of selling, I outsold everybody else on the floor. That was amazing to me. I couldn't believe it. Inside of six months, because my social media stuff was going so well, I was doing social media now for the entire store. Inside a year, I began to take on some management uh, tasks inside the dealership, which was blowing me away. And then not too long after that, I was a sales manager. Not long after that, I hired my first staff member. Uh, I had no idea (laughs) I'd be in that role, but there I was. Within a few years and as uh, things went along, I found myself in a position to uh, actually have hired the entire sales team at that point. And all I knew how to do, because I had been a pastor for 20 years, uh, was build the team based around principles and around goals and around planning. And that's what I did. I built a team culture that was based around Rick Warren's five uh, principles from Purpose Driven Life. That's just how I knew what to do. 
I was doing well, the dealership was doing well, even through COVID, no problem. I was making lots of money, or at least more money than I thought I could uh, in, that, in that world. And in the middle of all that, a nudge. Now, I don't tell you that story about myself to shine a spotlight on me. Uh, this is 100% God's provision on my life. But I do want to say uh, that nudge comes in unexpected ways, in unexpected places. And it would have been very easy for me to say, no, this is going well. I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to do this. But this nudge, this restlessness kept building and building and building. And again, that led to a conversation, which led to another conversation, which led to a job offer. And here I am speaking to a camera at Sobel Church. God is doing amazing things in my life. He's done healing in my life. He's done a great work of provision in my life. And he's doing it for you too. And I wonder if you have taken time to recognize that in your life. Where has God moved? Where has his story intersected with yours? How is he calling? How is he gifting you uh, to do ministry? And are you able, are you willing to say yes to that? Well, I want to encourage you in that. If you haven't already, I think that your journey is not complete because you are not unlike the Pharisees, forgetting that you're looking so hard for something else that you miss Jesus. Or like Adoniah, you see uh, an opportunity, but you've forgotten the words of God into your brother or sister's life just that while ago. And so you've stepped where you're not supposed to step. The same one who performs many miracles that I read about does one in me. The same one who calls Lazarus from the dead calls me to life as well. The one who weeps at the sight of Jerusalem that day sees me and who weeps with me and over me. The same one who turns tables in the temple court, we'll see that tomorrow, comes and flips my life around. The same one who walks with a bunch of misfits and friends, uh, one of them who's a doctor who doesn't even record somebody coming back from the dead walks with me too and he calls me a friend the same one who does work in my life is working in yours as well will you recognize it my response daily is to recognize him to do my best to walk in stride with him as he leads to press into his grace when i don't do things right because i'm certainly not perfect to lean on his mercy as i pick up the pace again to learn from his correction in my life. His love never fails. His love never gives up on me and his love pursues me continually. And that is true for you too. This is the amazing thing about the cross to me. Jesus went through agony on the cross. And we'll look more about, at that as the days go on here. But today I want to, as, we're, as I'm encouraging you to do some self-reflection, that Jesus took on all of those things because of you. And if all of that could have been done just for you, he still would have done it.
and he still would have done it for me. Even if he couldn't have saved anybody else, he still would have done it. So as we come into Holy Week, as we lean into the story of Palm Sunday and the tapestry that is built around that and the history that comes into play as we do that, the, the prophecies answered as we come into that, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Solomon, who, hailed, who was hailed as he entered the city, and though he did good things, he did fail. And at some point in his life, he died and he didn't come back. Zechariah was a prophet, and through him, uh, God spoke to the people and gave them words to cling to through difficult generations, not just days. And he didn't live to see those promises fulfilled. The Roman occupation uh, that we read so much about in the New Testament uh, eventually ended, and many in that nation still uh, wrestle with the idea of seeing that the Messiah, that God had come to visit them on that day. The religious leaders that are there who intended to see Jesus die and unite their beloved uh, nation to, to keep their temple and the way that they knew life, well, they also passed away and they missed the prophecies fulfilled. Lazarus eventually did die again, and this time he didn't come back from the grave. Jesus, though, Jesus comes, uh, he sees everything that is happening and he weeps over Jerusalem. And now with the passage of time, 2022, he looks at our lives having experienced life and death and his resurrection and is changing my life every day. And he wants that for you too. So what if we purpose uh, this year coming into Holy Week and looking to the foot of the cross and his resurrection how do we make things new and fresh in our lives this year? All too often we hear stories that are familiar, but they've lost their power because of familiarity. We're looking or maybe so passive about these stories. We're looking so hard at them sometimes and passive other times that we miss Jesus working in the middle of it. How this year, how can we, just as we are, just as you are, come and find Jesus and, and, and know him more personally and more powerfully this Easter. Well, that's my challenge for today. Let me pray for you as we wrap up this time. Father, thank you so much for the tapestry. I've been using that word probably too many times, but it's amazing to see how you weave things together for our good, how you bring all these ends to come uh, together so that your son comes and in that moment we find our life and our being. God, would you speak to us on how to set things aside that need to be set aside? Would you help us to understand and give us strength to pick up the things that we need to pick up? But as we do that, let us see that it's a journey that we're going on with you. And as we do that, Father, would you guide us and direct us? And even now, during this special time of our calendar, as we come into Holy Week and we uh, really focus in on the sacrifice and the, uh, the journey that Jesus took for our salvation, God, would you help it to be fresh and new for us this year? Would you help us to fall in love more this year? And would you help our faith become white hot so that we can become 
the kids that you want us to be, just as we are, with nothing else uh, that we need to bring, just that we encounter you just as we are, and you find us and you love us so much. Help your kids come to you even more today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.